And in the Bibles, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find this on page 979. We're just looking at the first nine verses today. And next week, we'll consider what it means to put on the whole armor of God and to be strong in the Lord. But today, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And that's where we'll conclude our section for today. First thing that I'd like to highlight that I think Paul is making in his logic, actually, we should connect this back to last week because these these go together when he instructs husbands and wives and then children and parents and then slaves and masters, that one of the main points that he is making here is that anyone can serve Christ. Because in the flow of each three, what he does is as he describes these three different groups of people and these three different relationships in society, the first order of instruction that he gives is to the person who, culturally speaking in first century Ephesus, would have the least amount of political power or capital. They don't have a lot of rights. They don't have a lot of freedoms, and therefore their ability to influence things is significantly limited in first century Ephesus. But Paul addresses them first, which is a wonderful indication of what the first century church was like. In other words, Paul addresses all of them because he assumes that when this letter is read publicly, that there are children and parents, that there are husbands and wives, that there are slaves and masters, that they're all together in the body of Christ so that he can write these various instructions and assume that they're all present. So what he assumes is that the body of Christ is organized differently than some of the societal things around them. So that if he was addressing the the representatives of the city of Ephesus and the government, he would not be addressing women or wives, he would not be addressing children, and he would not be addressing slaves. Do you get that point? So he is assuming that the gathered body of Christ is made up of a different type of membership than what is invisible in other parts of society. He assumes that children are a part of this gathering and he has something to say to them. He assumes that wives are present. He assumes that slaves are present. And what is actually going on is that for most of them, they gather together for worship in the context of their homes, and so he is addressing all of them. So that if you imagine a wealthier landlord who in his company has both his spouse, his kids, and all who work his field are gathered together, and here he assumes that they're going to read this letter and they're going to have instruction for them. And so he assumes that the body of Christ 
can assemble people from different generations, different backgrounds, different economic realities, and that they can experience a fellowship together as one in Christ, and to say that anyone can serve Christ. And so he has instruction for wives and children and slaves first as a way to say, don't think what I'm about to say is irrelevant to you. Don't think God overlooks you. Don't think that however your authority and influence is reflected in society, that that is necessarily a reflection of God's will. Because God cares about all of you. He has equally made all of you. He's sovereign over all of you. And he has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of you. One of the things I forgot to mention last week is that as Paul gave all of those instructions specifically about marriage, we know this intellectually, but we can just forget it sometimes, he said it as a single person. That all the good that we saw last week that Paul highlighted in terms of husbands and wives and how they're supposed to love one another and how that's supposed to reflect Christ in the church, he said it as himself a single person. And so same thing. Now he's about to give us instructions about being parents. And he doesn't have kids. And he is not a master nor a slave. And he's about to give instructions related to that. So Paul does not, in his own personal experience, know exactly what all of these realities are like. But as he's talking about the fullness of life that we are to experience in Christ, that's what Ephesians is about. How can we experience that fullness? And as he gives these practical instructions... What we can sometimes do is say, where do I fit in this? And we, we want to know where we fit in it, but also realize that if Paul himself doesn't quite fit in it, as not being almost any of these categories, he's not saying this is the only way to do this. He's not saying that this is the only way to serve Christ, and so that if you're not married, you can't reflect Christ in the church, and if you don't have children, then you can't. No, 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 because then all of that would be true of Paul. He's sitting in a prison cell as he's writing this. Very little freedom of movement and time and effort. But he talks about the fullness of joy that he can experience in Christ. And so as he's writing all of these people, he is saying to them that you can experience, anyone can serve Christ. And so first, in our passage today, he addresses the children and he says to them, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This isn't a new instruction. This is part of some of the original instruction in the Ten Commandments. And this is one of those commandments that comes with promise. In other words, as you submit to the authority of the adults in your life, your own life is better off in the long term. And that as a society, as we encourage people to respect authority that exists, life is better off in a city, in a community where there is a healthy relationship between those two. And where people do not respect authority and do not listen to authority and are suspicious of authority, in part because there are abuses of authority. But if you live in an environment like that, there's nothing fun about it. If you don't have a basic trust level of those who are in charge and those who make decisions that affect other people, you have a place that you would not want to live. And so he says, I'm giving you these instructions to obey your parents But just like in marriage, when he told the husbands to love their wives, and he's like, what I'm really telling you to do is basically love your own body. You're one flesh. So as you make sacrifices for the good of another, you reap the benefit of that. He's doing the same thing with children and saying, as you respect authority, as you honor your mother and father in the Lord and all those who've made a positive influence in your life for Christ, it not only honors them, but it's better for you. Your life is richer and more fuller if you're able to to do that. And then it's interesting that he says in verse 4, so the instruction in verse 1 is to obey both parents in the Lord. 
And then he specifies in verse 4 the responsibility of fathers as it relates to parenting. Which is interesting because culturally we've kind of divorced those two. And we've, we've said that the realm of uh, child rearing might be in the realm of what wives and mothers are supposed to do, but the realm and, and, and the responsibility to make income or do things, that's what fathers do. That's a separation that we've had basically since the Industrial Revolution. It's not true of the first century. You, you, didn't just, you couldn't even separate your work and your home. Most people worked outside of their home. They had farmland. They, there was no, they didn't drive somewhere to go to work. Everything that they had was integrated in a way that is no longer integrated for us. And so we can drive 30 miles one direction for work and 30 miles another direction to recreate and to relax after work. But in the first century, these things were all tied together. And so what he's saying, as in the previous chapter, that father, husbands bear a responsibility to lead in their home, he's saying, don't you dare separate that from the responsibility to lead also your children. You have that responsibility. I've had a couple of times in relationships that have been broken and have come apart where I've heard a a heartbroken wife now divorced from her husband say, you know, he was a really bad husband, but he's being a pretty good dad. And the reality is that's simply not true. It's not possible. Because the best thing you could be as a father is a loving, supportive spouse. It's what your kids need most, more than anything. And they say it usually in an emotional response and then over time they, it becomes obvious that no, that those two things were never meant to be separated. And so he challenges fathers to take a lead in going after the heart of their children. Don't provoke your children to anger. In other words, as you assert your authority, as you lay out whatever the boundaries are, whatever the responsibilities are in the home. Do not take the opportunity simply by raw force or power to make them the rules. Try to, try to help them see why it's good for them. Help them understand why they need to do this, to attract them to it. There's nothing special about being six feet taller than someone and then being able to make them do something. Whoop, whoop-de-doo. Can you love them in such a way and lead them in such a way that over time they desire to do what is ultimately good for them. And so you're going after their heart and you're being sensitive to their emotions that they would see the things and not just be provoked to anger over discipline but that you would actually seek to guide and shepherd their hearts along the way. That's the challenge. That's the call. And so you say, well, how do you do that? Well, you just go backwards in Ephesians and you look at all the things said in chapter 4 and chapter 5 when he talks about being tenderhearted, being filled with compassion, being able to forgive, making sure that the words that come out of your mouth are, are seasoned with grace and that you desire to build them up. He's already laid out the instruction. Here he's just applying it and saying, like we said last week, don't go to, well, how can I be a great Christian and then immediately think outside of your home? Start with the people closest to you. Start with those for whom you bear the primary responsibility for their life and for their flourishing. And don't ever use service for Christ in some other capacity as an excuse to neglect your primary responsibility. We said that last week, but it bears repeating again and again. God has never designed that your participation in a local church or a nonprofit organization or whatever it is that you would ever do good 
as a way of substituting or neglecting your primary responsibility to the people closest to you. And there are people who are giving significant amount of time and money and energy doing good things, but they are doing it out of a hollowness of what they experience either in their self-image and also in their home. And they're doing it to make up for something rather than out of the overflow of something. And that's what Jesus confronted his whole ministry as he challenged so many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, like, hey, you sitting on the committee of the Sanhedrin think you're doing something good? If you're using this opportunity to neglect the primary responsibilities that you have to the people that are closest to you, that's not honoring God. That's not, you're not serving God by ignoring those realities. And so Jesus was most confrontational to those who were volunteering on committees, serving on boards, doing all kinds of things as it related to the public worship of the church, challenging them to make sure that their service was consistent to what they were doing in their own home, in their personal affairs, to how they treated the people that were closest to them. That's what God desires. When we talk about righteousness and holiness and faithfulness, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about consistency. That we would be integrated, that how we talk to the people closest to us, how we live and act with them is also how we talk and live and act in public. And that we don't allow those things to become separated. And so he challenges fathers to see their responsibility. And then when he talks about slaves and masters, it is a reality in the first century that there are slaves and masters. And we might immediately think of an American version of slavery, which is not what was going on in the first century. It was not specifically connected to someone's race over which they had no say. It might have been someone who has accumulated a debt and then comes and walks onto the property of a landowner and says, can I work for you for the next four years and be your servant and so that I can pay off my debts? And the person would say, okay okay, if you want to come, you can, I'll, I'll put you up. You've got room and board, and you're my worker for the next couple of years. It was a much more of a voluntary transaction. If it was involuntary, it was usually connected to warfare, and so that if one nation conquered another nation, they would take and make servants out of people. Here, Paul's not giving commentary on whether that's right or wrong, but he's giving instructions to both which is still true in this day. Outside of the United States, in so many places in the world, this is still a reality. There are still slaves in this world. There are people who have no say in the work that they are doing. I mean, I'm conflicted. One of the, my favorite sport is soccer. And they can already document for not this next World, uh, world Cup, but the one after. The next one's in Russia, and the one after that is in Qatar, in Qatar, however you want to pronounce it, in the Middle East. Well, they can already document how many workers are dying trying to build these stadiums in the middle of the desert? And these workers work for incredibly minimal wages, and it takes sometimes almost nine months to a year for those wages to be collected. It is so absurd, so that if the trend continues, more than, I think the numbers, more than 5,000 of them will die just in building these stadiums in a nation that should not be hosting a World Cup. Why are they doing it? Many of them are choosing to do it because the economic conditions of where they come from are even worse. And so they're taking the risk. And it's a horrible reality that they're giving so much of their time and effort. And right now, I mean, it's close to home because we have a, a, Amy's sister lives in Brazil, but the Brazil economy is, is in a total wreck. And most economists could tell them 
You shouldn't be hosting a World Cup, and you shouldn't be hosting an Olympics. You're going to wreck your economy if you do this. And they chose to do it. Same thing was visible in Greece. And so much of what they're dealing with was predictable years before they built massive stadiums hosting events. And people could say, this isn't going to be good afterwards. I mean, you'll get like three weeks of really good media coverage, and then your economy will take decades to recover. And so why do so many nations choose it? I don't know, but these are realities that are out there. And some of us are stuck in those realities, but if we're not, we know people who are stuck in those realities. And some of you are in a situation where you're trying to pay off bills and so you're in a job that you don't like and you don't feel any freedom or satisfaction in what you give the majority of your time to. You admit it. I mean, if I could just get another job, I would. And here what Paul is saying is, one, take advantage of the opportunities we have when you're able to get a different job. But you don't have to wait until you get another job to serve Christ. You don't. You can know him and experience him and grow in your relationship with him right where you are. And you can pursue change, you can pursue something different, but ultimately fullness in Christ is not getting political authority, economic freedom, or whatever it is. Because there's tons of people who have that and they're miserable. I mean, if we just go backwards to, to last week in marriage... If the key ingredients to a successful marriage were to be really, really beautiful and have a lot of money, then Hollywood would be the example of how to make marriage work. Because you have the most beautiful people with the highest percentage of income in the world. And they've not demonstrated that 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 those are the key ingredients to make marriage work. It's something else that makes marriage work. Same thing here. Satisfaction in Christ and joy and full life in Him Sure, we can do more when we're working in a job that we love, when the relationships that we have are going well, but when he specifically addresses children and then slaves, he's saying, you don't have to wait for the future to do what God wants you to do. There's something that God has for you right now as a child. There is something right now that God has for you while you're stuck in a job that you don't like and you have a boss that doesn't like you. Because if the Christian gospel only gives us hope when everything's going well and our boss loves us and the pay is good and our neighbors are great, you don't actually need a lot of faith and you don't need a gospel to handle moments like that. Those are just good days and you should enjoy them. The gospel provides to all of us something that transcends those realities and gives us hope even beyond that. And his challenge to those in authority, so if anyone can serve Christ, the next thing that he's saying is that everyone is accountable to Christ. And so as he addresses those who politically, socially have more authority in society, he says, don't get too puffed up about that. All of that is still under the realm of my authority. And every unjust master, unjust employer, every parent that neglects their responsibility to whether it's their spouse or their children everyone will one day be accountable to Christ himself and no injustice that we right now experience will be made permanent and so he warns them and that's the language in in, in verse 9 when he says masters do the same stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven 
In other words, it, it looks like you've got the better end of the deal right now. You, you have more influence. You have more authority. But you will still give an account one day to me, the ultimate leader, the ultimate authority, the ultimate master. And then he says, with whom there is no partiality. What he's saying is, you don't get any bonus points for being the master. You don't get any bonus points for being the parent. You don't get any bonus points for being the husband. So I've given specific instructions, but when everyone comes before me, everyone is judged individually based on who they are and the opportunities that they had before me. And what that should confirm in our minds is this last point, that everything Christ does is good. We see all kinds of injustices, and we look at the world, the majority of what we read about is not good. And if there is no Christ, and if there is no resurrection from the dead, then when we die, every unjust and bad thing that's happened in this world is made permanent forever. But if there is a Christ, and he really rose from the dead, then there is a future judgment day that we all await. And we trust that he'll be able to work all of those things out. That there is no impartiality with him. I mean, where else do you go when you've spent the last 48 hours looking at news reports that talk about horrific crimes against people? And that you realize those don't come out of a vacuum. Those come out of decades of horrific realities from a variety of places and situations. So not casting blame in any one direction, but just looking at the headlines and saying, oh my goodness, if this is all there is, we have little reason to hope. We have little reason to go out and do the things that we're called to do and to get married and to have kids and to do what we can with the jobs that we've been entrusted with. Because if at the end of the day, someone can just come in and take that all away in a moment and there's no ultimate accountability for that, it takes away the motivation to move forward. But if Christ is who he said he is and the promise of the resurrection is there for each and every one of us, then it gives us hope precisely in the world like ours. That as Christians, we should look at the news stories and say, these are really horrible and we're going to pray for everyone involved, but we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. We do what we do precisely because of those realities. We try to share the gospel because the world is a broken place. We try to love other people because people are more often than not hostile to one another. So that every tragedy we see and every broken promise we experience, rather than destroying our faith, confirms in us that, no, seriously, if there is not the resurrection that Christ offers us, why? Why try? Why work hard to love other people and to make sacrifices for them and sacrifices for those you love? But precisely because the resurrection is true, we can own all of the bad that's out there and say, no, it is, it is really bad. It is a really dark time right now. But we should be the people that don't give up hope. We don't need to wait for five years from now before we have a future. We don't need to wait till the next presidential cycle before we say, oh, well, now we can make some progress. We don't need to wait for the next... No, right now, right here, with all that is before us, there is work for us to do. There are ways for us to worship him. And precisely because we believe that everything he does is good. And so he's worth working for. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for how much you love us, how much you care for us. That when we look out into our world, we see all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of messaging that tells us that we only matter if this and life is only meaningful when this happens. And we just pray that as the body of Christ, we would be able to break away from those messages and those lies from the enemy and to realize that each and every one of us is valued by you, is loved by you, and that you would help us to communicate your gospel in such a way that we pass that on to other people, that we do really have a message and a hope that is for everyone. And so we pray that you would open wide the doors for us to be able to share that hope. And we pray that you would help us in our own lives to think very specifically about how we can apply these truths to those who are closest to us. And we just give you the freedom to do all that you desire and intend to do in us. And we sing this song of praise as an expression of thanks of your great love for us. In your name we pray, amen.